You're listening to the Disney One by One podcast, a chronological look at every Disney animated classic and beyond. Here's your host, Mike Rolfing. Hey, and welcome to Disney One by One. This week is our 17th movie on the list. It is 101 Dalmatians from 1961. And as always, don't forget to check us out all over the internet, social media at Disney1x1. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, etc. And if you could leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen, it'd be much appreciated. With me today, as always, the Sergeant Tibbs to my horse captain, David Rolfing. <laughs> David, welcome to the show. Hello, Mike. Thank you for having me back on another animal-filled episode. Yes. They've been a common theme in these early Disney movies. And if I'm recalling correctly, Sergeant Tibbs was the cat. So you're, yes. the, you're the cat on the horse today. <laughs> and joining us today, um, a new special guest on the show, Michael Hafner. Michael, welcome to the show. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. This is great to be here. Yeah. And uh, as I was sort of compiling my list of guests I'd want on this show, you were one of the ones that came to mind because oh, you're one of, the biggest, sweet of you. one of the biggest movie fans that I've ever met. And uh, you actually write for a blog, correct? I do. I write for wearemoviegeeks.com. It's something that I'm extremely passionate about, talking about films on podcasts, writing about films. Um, I've never talked on a Disney podcast before, so yeah, this is extremely ex exciting for me, so it's great to be here. Cool, and you like get to go to press screenings, and you're like official, right? I do, yeah, yeah, I mean, you, you get to see advanced screenings, uh, you get to go to film festivals sometimes, and yeah, it's, it is it, it is exciting. Have you ever gotten to do one of those press junkets where you like cycle through and talk to celebrities yeah, or anything? It, it's a little nerve wracking because it's one of those things where you're sort of waiting your turn and you only have like 15 minutes. So you really have to like be specific about what are you going to ask about? And you don't want to ask the same questions that like the 10 other people prior to you right. asked about. <laughs> so it's like, okay, how do you stand out from the pack? But yeah, it's, uh, it, 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 it's a fun experience. And then of course you get to meet some of your idols or, you know, people you look up to as creators or artists. Sure. Yeah. And if you listening, don't know what we're talking about. If you ever see like interviews with celebrities and they're just in this like black room with a movie poster behind them, they just like cycle through reporter after oh, reporter yeah. they, after they reporter. They sit yeah. in front of like 30 <laughs> reporters in a day. Yeah. I mean, they, they're just exhausted by the end of it. And, you know, you're all excited and you're nerve wracked, you know, leading up to it. But yeah, they're just oftentimes bored out of their mind so you try to keep it interesting for them there are some great highlight or more like low light clips from celebrities like getting angry in interviews like that <laughs> and it's usually it's usually those black backdrop repeat interviews like that right and that's why because they've been sitting in this room all day um who, who who have you talked to that's like been amazing you know what i early in their careers um, since we're talking about Disney, I can mention this. I talked to the writer and the director of Doctor Strange, ah. the Marvel film. Uh, Scott Derrickson's the director of that and C. Robert Cargill. Um, they were promoting a film called Sinister that they did with Ethan Hawke. That's sort of a, a horror thriller that I, I actually enjoyed quite a bit. But yeah, I thought they were great. That was one of the, my favorite interviews I got to do. Cool. That's that's more than we've done on this show. <laughs> Maybe we'll get uh You guys are just getting your training wheels off though. Yeah, you know, right, you guys exactly. are now coasting right now, but uh yeah. 
we didn't get any pre-screening for Wreck-It Ralph 2 or anything. We're not, no. not quite up there. No. Yeah, when Wreck-It Ralph 3 comes out, though, you know, fingers crossed. Sure. Michael, why don't you tell us a little bit about your Disney history, since this is a, this is a Disney podcast. Did you grow up watching Disney movies, going to the parks, anything like that? Yeah, I definitely did. I mean, I I grew up during the peak, what I consider like the peak, like 90s era. Aladdin is my favorite Disney film of all time. And, you know, you had Beauty and the Beast in that time period. You had Mulan. All of those films would easily fit in my top five. But then aside from that, my dad, um, with his job, we were able to travel to Disney World in Orlando a couple of times when I was young. I think I went there when I was about six and when I was about nine. Okay. Distant memories. Yeah, yeah, distant memories. I haven't been back since, but I remember going two or three times when I was really young. And just some of the imagery and some of the characters and just the rides. I mean, all of that leaves a lasting impression on you that I was so young and yet I still remember this as an old man now. You know, so <laughs> Yeah, I mean they do stick with you. I love I love the parks. I was just listening to a podcast interviewing i forget the lady's name but she was like the executive at disney who greenlit pirates of the caribbean oh wow and the host was like this uh, turning a theme park ride into a movie sounds like a terrible idea how did you ever even think of that and she's like well you know those rides are not necessarily about like the content of them but about the emotions that you remember from them and like the smells and the feels and she was like if i could turn that into a movie i knew i had a hit and obviously Johnny Depp was nominated for an Oscar for that movie, so it did pretty well. Unfortunately, and it, it didn't work as well for The Haunted uh, Mansion, one of my favorite attractions as a kid. Is that Eddie Murphy's in that one, right? Yeah, right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I haven't seen it either, actually. Well, and then Tomorrowland, they decided to turn a whole land into a movie, and th- that I did not. That George Clooney movie was so disappointing. Well, it's got a good director, too. I think Brad Bird was behind that. He turned down Star Wars to work on that. Yeah. Yeah, it's a shame. I mean, it's all the elements were right there for him. You know, an accomplished director coming off of The Incredibles and didn't really give that nostalgia smell and feel factor that you're talking about that Pirates captured. No, and Tomorrowland is my favorite land in the parks. And so that was even more disappointing. Anyway, uh, you've you've said a couple of your top five movies. Have you did you make a specific list that you can count down for us? Gosh, it's so tough. But yeah, I mean, I. I mean, Aladdin would have to be number one for me. I wore out that VHS tape so hard as a kid. I mean, I probably watched that at least once a week. Beauty and the Beast would probably sit around number two. Loved Mulan. That would probably be number three. Which Mulan's one of those films that I don't think I really appreciated until like multiple viewings. It's like when you first see it, it's one of those films where I feel like it's hard to get into because at that point, the culture and the symbolism felt really distant to me. But as I grew older, it's like, wow, like it it really did take an immersive sort of look at a culture, which later films like Moana uh, definitely sort of learned from, took a page from. I also, the same way, I've, I felt the same way with Pocahontas as I've gotten older. Like, I love the animation in Pocahontas. And then number five is really a tie for me between Little Mermaid and Fantasia. I love the animation. I love the sequences. And I'm a huge fan of classical music. And so I feel like that has a lot to do with my love of Fantasia. Like, I grew up watching Looney Tunes um, cartoons. And they use Bach and Mozart and and all this classical music so well and Fantasia definitely does as well. 
What do you think of Fantasia 2000? It's it's fine. I mean, the, the sequences aren't as memorable. That That's definitely a film I, I will admit that I haven't revisited probably in far too long. So it, it, it's probably due for a rewatch. You are maybe the first guest or second guest to not include Lion King in your top five. What gives? For some reason. I don't know why. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know if it was just my age or if... Yeah, there was something about that where it just... There was a disconnect. I felt like it was trying too hard to appeal to my emotions as a kid. Like even watching it now, like I see it. But as a kid, like I remember thinking like, this is really trying hard to make me cry. And it's working. (laughs) It's absolutely working. Like, you know, you're sitting in the theater when he's like telling his father to get up, get up. And it's like it's making you emotional. But it felt very manipulative. That movie, that movie critic in you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Even as a young age, I knew I was destined to be a critic. You're like, it's Hamlet, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> and before we move on, we have an iTunes review and an email to read for you. First from iTunes, David Stockton says, Been such a fun show to listen to. I never realized how many of these I haven't seen, and the ones I have seen are so vague from childhood. I can't wait to watch some for the first time and others with a fresh perspective. Thank you for a great podcast. Thanks for that, Dave. And an email from Joel, he says, loving the podcast, and he says that Sir Mickey's is a gift shop in Fantasyland in the Magic Kingdom that is based on Mickey and the Beanstalk, which of course is a section from Fun and Fancy Free, so I don't think I've been in this gift shop, which is probably why we didn't mention this on that episode. So thanks for that, Joel. I will certainly check it out next time I'm at the Magic Kingdom. And I also just wanted to let you guys know that I was recently a guest on another podcast. It's called the BR Guest Podcast. It is a fantastic Disney trip planning podcast hosted by Mike Rollman, who's another Mike in St. Louis. I was on episode 1472, so we have a few to go to catch up with Mike here on Disney One by One. Got to talk about my recent trip to Animal Kingdom and just talk Disney with another great Disney fan. So if you love Disney and you're planning a trip to the parks anytime soon, check out the Be Our Guest podcast. Again, I'm on episode 1472. And uh, for those of you who found this show through his show, thanks for checking us out, and we hope you stick around and listen to some more episodes. So with that, we'll move on to 101 Dalmatians. And now, our feature presentation. Filmed in brilliant Technicolor, 101 Dalmatians is a story as modern as a poodle's pompadour, as exciting as a howl at midnight, and funny, it's the doggondest comedy of the year. 101 Dalmatians, or is it 101 Dalmatians? I think it's 101. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, it was... uh, a book written in 1956 by Dodie Smith. Dottie? Dodie? Dodie? She based the main character, Pongo, on her own Dalmatian. The idea came when one of her friends saw her collection of Dalmatians and said, man, those would make a really good coat. And so from there, the story began. Walt read the book in 1957 and immediately got the rights to it. Apparently, the author, Dodie Smith, actually wanted him to buy the rights to it. So I'm, I'm curious how much negotiation there was because she kind of wanted it to be a Disney film in the first place. Disney assigned Bill Peet to write the story. He had worked on pretty much every movie up until that point and through Jungle Book. This was the first Disney movie to only have one writer, which is kind of interesting, and Bill Peet was the guy. He changed a few things from the book, as you typically do in adaptations, but the author of the book actually was quoted saying that she liked those changes better than her story and that the illustrations made for the movie were actually better than the ones in her book, which is kind of fun. Normally you don't get that. That's like the opposite of P.L. Travers and Mary Poppins. 
Or the opposite of Stephen King and The Shining. Yeah. For right. <laughs> Stanley Kubrick adapted it. <laughs> so by uh, 1959, uh, and the disappointment that was Sleeping Beauty, which did not make its money back. It was a flop at the time, despite being a beautiful film, as we discussed last week. There was actually talk of closing the animation department at Disney. Even Disney recommended it or suggested it as a possibility. They were making tons of live action movies at the, at the time. They had Johnny Tremaine and Old Yeller and Zorro movies and Pollyanna and Swiss Family Robinson. A whole slew of things that seemed to be doing better and were possibly cheaper than some of these animated films. But Ub Iwerks, Ub Oob, I don't know, Ub's short for something, who was like Disney's one of his early partners. He's the guy who helped like co-create Mickey Mouse was starting to develop like a new form of expediting animation, which involved Xerox, like copy, like an old form of like a copy machine, which this method that they created basically was like able to cut the time and budget in half. And so it's basically instead of like the artist would draw on paper and then they had a whole team of people that would like transfer those drawings onto the, the cells that were then put into their you know, multi-plane camera. And this like Xerox process was able to transfer these hand drawings straight to the cells without having to have like a person like hand do it. Now, and I noticed this almost immediately, especially because we've been watching all these in a row, like the quality or like the, uh, I'm trying to think the best way to say it. Like the there's detail. definitely some, r- some like roughness around the edges. Yeah. The animation isn't as crisp as some of these previous movies, but apparently they could do it much quicker. So. Compared to Sleeping Beauty, it looks yeah. like completely different, like a different studio, probably yes. from that process. Yes. And I think also Bill Pete, who then hired Ken Anderson to kind of be the art director, they decided to go with this style based on this British cartoonist named Ronald Searle, who was like a satirical like cartoonist. And so kind of that the character design and the and the background design were kind of based on this very specific art form, which may have been part of the whole Xerox thing and kind of all came together into this like this certain look. So they had to then cast some people. So we've talked quite a bit on early on previous episodes about recurring voices and recurring people in these movies. And this is no exception. Corella DeVille was eventually voiced by Betty Lou Gerson, who was the narrator in Cinderella. Thurl Ravenscroft, who voiced Captain the Horse, sings the Saludos Amigos theme song from that movie. <laughs> He's also the, avo- the original voice of Eeyore. It's kind of fun. Bill Lee, who is the singing voice of Roger, does a number of singing voices in these Disney movies, including Shere Khan in Jungle Book. And he's also the singing voice of Captain Von Trapp in Sound of Music, which is really random. <laughs> um, <laughs> Under One Dalmatians was eventually released January 25th, 1961. It grossed $14 million initially and ultimately $215 million, which if you adjust for inflation is like $888 million. So I would call that a success. We, of course, had the 1996 live action remake starring Glenn Close and Hugh Laurie is in it. Dr. House. And Jeff Daniels. And Jeff Daniels, yeah. Dr. House uh, is one of the, the the henchmen. There was a TV series that I haven't seen. Toon Disney. I yeah. watched it. Did you watch that? Yeah, as a kid. <laughs> and then uh, there was a sequel, 101 Dalmatians 2, Patches London Adventure in 2003. I could think of one instance in Disney World where the Dalmatians are present, David. <laughs> Considering last week's, I, there's no way I know it. Uh, it's at one of the let hotels. Me guess, I'll guess what park. Animal well, Kingdom. No, one of the hotels. Ah, dang it. 
Yeah, they all star movies. So they have giant Dalmatians. Gotcha. Which I'm sure we've seen some. David or Michael, any anything to contribute to that extensive history? Yeah, I mean, with with Ken Anderson, I think it's interesting because him serving as art director, it like you pointed out, it does give it this sort of sketchy look. Um, I think it's funny that apparently Walt Disney hated the sort of look of the film where like the color was like bleeding over the edges. Like if you look at the backgrounds of the film, like the colors were bleeding into one another yet Walt later described Ken Anderson as a Jack of all trades. But I I remember reading that he specifically told him like, okay, enough of the Dalmatian sort of art, you know, we need to move on past that. So I, I always think it's interesting that he hated the the film's art, which I think is one of the reasons why I adore the film as much as I do, is because of the artwork. Watching it now, and I've seen this movie a bunch as a kid, which we'll get into, but I really liked the look and feel of it. It does seem and feel rough around the edges, especially compared to Sleeping Beauty that we talked about last week, but it definitely is unique and really interesting to look at. I had a couple quick random facts to add to your history. There's no way anybody noticed this, but all the barks in the movie were human voice barks, not actually dog barks. <laughs> I heard that. Yeah, which that's I don't know crazy. Why they choose to do it that way? I guess they had a really good barker on the crew, but it was the guy who voiced Donald Duck, uh, Clarence Nash, who did all the barking. Huh. Interesting. Kind of, kind of weird. And, and apparently, if you look at the Dalmatians, there's lots of like hidden easter egg mickey ears throughout like a lot of the spots and whatnot like are made to look like you know the mickey's ears and like the face and whatnot so yeah yeah, it's kind of interesting one other one the dogs aren't actually white white and black they're all gray and black the animators said that the the white would stand out way too much if they use that as their color if you look at their eyes compared to their fur it definitely is like a gray hue compared to the white of their eyes so it's kind of interesting there. And then the last one was the cars, the car chase scene. They created uh, cardboard models of the cars and filmed them moving around to reference, to make references for the animation. Um, and then they used that Xerox process, whatever that really means to like insert them into the backgrounds of the images. Ironically, I was actually at Walgreens the other day because I was picking up cold medicine and they had a Hot Wheels toy of that red sort of car that Cruella DeVille drives in the back at, at towards the end of the film. And it was like part of the anniversary collection of Hot Wheels or whatever, but they actually had that in stores and it, it's kind of neat. It was like Cruella branded. Yeah. It was a oh, 101 wow. Dalmatians uh, and it had Cruella DeVille on it, but it's that red sort of car. And I almost picked it up because it's, it's funny. It's like, I just watched the rewatched the film. I'm, picking up cold medicine it's like oh my gosh there it is what walgreens is that at uh this one in st louis over well i'll pick it up for you if you really want it <laughs> yeah i'll pick it up <laughs> you don't need to buy it for me i can find it <laughs> so michael before we dive into like a specific review I'm curious what your history of this movie was before you watched it a day or two ago. Had you seen this a lot as a kid or is it sort of a new movie for you? I watched it a handful of times as a kid. It wasn't like a a constant rewatch like um, Little Mermaid or Aladdin was, but definitely a film I was familiar with and definitely a film that I remember from the opening sequence. (laughs) 
My dad was a big fan of jazz music, and I always thought the opening title sequence um, with the music and the way the titles were coming onto screen reminded me of some of the films that my dad used to watch as a kid, and like, and I always thought the title sequence was very unique um, compared to the other Disney films that I remember growing up watching, like Sleeping Beauty and the other ones. So I, it, it always stuck out in my mind. David, how about you? I think we watched this quite a bit. At least I did. And you're my little brother, so I think you did too. <laughs> so I actually have more memory of the Toon Disney TV show okay. and even the live action movie than the actual story of this movie. So I I didn't recognize much from this movie besides like the Cruella de Vil song and other like staples. But as far as the whole story, I had no clue what was going to happen. So it was basically like I was watching it. For the first time, but I'm sure I did watch it as a little kid. I just don't really remember it. I think it was Burger King when I was a kid. When the Glenn Close film got released, they did a Happy Meal line of like ornament slash toys where they released all 101 Dalmatian uh, characters. Yep. We had them. In yep. like plastic sort of versions and I remember trying to collect all of them. I don't think I got all 101 <laughs> but I remember going week after week with my family. Like, That's and it's funny. like, oh, I really wanted to try to get all of them. And like somewhere we're playing with a candy cane, somewhere like hopping through like a Christmas wreath yeah. because they were all done around Christmas yeah. time. One was hanging out of a stocking and uh, I always thought those were really cool and that always left a big impression on me. So even though I didn't see it during when its original theatrical run was released, like I remember the re-release of, you know, the film and the, um, the remake. Yeah, that's funny. I, I have memories of that as well. Yeah, I watched this movie a lot as a kid, maybe before you were born, David. Yeah. <laughs> Watching it again, like I remembered most of it. So I certainly watched this quite a bit and we'll get into some specifics of it. Don't miss Walt Disney's 101 Dalmatians being released now to theaters everywhere. Now that we have watched it again, Michael, what was sort of your initial reaction upon watching it now as an adult? Again, I'm sort of blown away by the animation. I love Ken Anderson's art direction on the film. I like the sketchiness. I like that the colors sort of bleed into one another. It just sort of sets it apart from other Disney films. And I like that at this time period, you had films like Sleeping Beauty, which looked different. And you had this film, which had its own sort of identity. And these films didn't all just fit into a box or they didn't all have a signature look. They had a look that was indicative of its storytelling so it's like sleeping beauty had sort of that stained glass window sort of approach yeah this had this sort of like cool sort of jazz inspired look i was also sort of thinking about lady and the tramp while watching it it's like you don't have necessarily like evil animal characters hmm. with this film you have like an evil human character but with Lady and the Tramp, you've got like the evil cats and things like that. Um, <laughs> we are, you know, this, me. this, yeah, yeah, exactly. You got, you know, the Siamese cats, and here it's like it's much more of a family film where parents can like it, kids can like it, animals can enjoy it. 
But aside from that, it's also a film that really touches on a lot of the the standard sort of Disney tropes that you see in all the other Disney films. You have the over-the-top villain. You yeah. have the bumbling sidekicks. You even have a few musical numbers thrown in. Like, you have all the tropes lined up in this one film. And you really see where Disney is taking off from this one film. Yeah, but they do some different things, too. Like, I like that they made Roger a songwriter. So the, the songs yeah. are actually naturally in the movie instead of just like a, like a musical. And... Yeah, I love, like you said, all the animals are the good guys and they're all collaborating with each other, like lighting the beacons, like in which Lord of the Rings movie is that? Return of the King. <laughs> Return of the King. <laughs> what do they call it? The, the, what do they call it when they bark across the country? Oh, yeah, yeah. The, what do they call it? The London Howl? In Howl this or movie? The, yeah, no, in this movie, uh, yeah. I don't remember. <laughs> they're like, we need to send off the something, something, something. And then they, yeah. they bark across, across England. Yeah, it's all about family. Whether it's a human or an animal, it's like everybody gets treated as family. You know, you don't treat like a dog like, oh, that's just a dog. No, that that's part of my family. And then you have the connective family outside of that, like you just pointed out, where it's like you're calling out to the other members of your family like, hey, can you help us defeat this evil villain? So, yeah, it's it it's it's a pretty, you know, moving film in that regard. David, how about you? This is kind of your first time, if you don't really remember it. <laughs> what do you think? As we've mentioned in previous episodes, I'm a new-ish dog owner the last couple of years, so I can appreciate the the family love of a dog more now than I could when I was a kid because we didn't have pets growing up. But, I mean, I really, I really enjoyed the movie. I think that, as you pointed out, the animation was unique and different, which I liked. I like how they, like, the dogs aren't... They're stylized, especially like the dogs in the barn and stuff, but they're not like anime dogs with huge eyes that just like, oh, there's just a cute little creature. Like they make them kind of realistic. And that style of this animation stuck out to me. Like it's stylized, but at the same time, it's not like too over the top. I mean, the the whole chase scenes, which was lasted a long time, probably second half of the movie um you know that they're going to be fine and a dog not a single dog is going to die and be turned into <laughs> fur and skin and, and whatnot but it, it kept up the intensity and like you're actually worried for the dogs and um when they were covered in soot and trying to get away from krell and everything like it was it was a little bit intense and i liked how they kept that intensity and kept you wondering what was going to happen even though in the back of the mind your mind you knew what was actually going to happen they were going to be fine so yeah as i've established in past episodes especially lady in the tramp episode i am not a dog person at all we, we had one when i was a little kid before you were around david and have not had one since and i just don't really like them very much however <laughs> i really enjoyed lady in the tramp and i really really like this movie i think just from start to finish it is so much fun as as we've talked about earlier just the look and style and feel is fantastic and Michael, you talked about the jazz stuff and the opening titles. I watched the opening titles a couple times the other night because it's so much fun and so unique to these Disney movies. I mean, they all have opening titles so far, but this one just seems to stick out. There's a little bit of, Michael, you might be able to help. Who's the guy who did like all the Alfred Hitchcock openings? Oh, gosh. Like Saul, um, Saul Bass or Saul something? Bass. Yeah. Saul Bass. Yeah. Some of it reminded me of him. 100%. I can see that. Yeah. Some of like the, the horizontal lines coming in and things kind of being drawn in and out. It reminded me of some Hitchcock movies. And yeah. And just like I said, 
from start to finish, I love all the characters in this movie. And there's such a variety of animal characters. They all have such fun personalities, different personalities, but they all collaborate so well together on this quest to to find the puppies. I especially loved the the collie in the barn, the very regal collie who stands guard as they sleep in the barn at night. And then, of course, you know, Carell DeVille is so much fun. <laughs> Just the, her name and, like, the fact that her house is called Hell Hall. <laughs> it's like, it'd be a, a little more a little more obvious at, at her intent. Yeah, and I wonder if this was an, an anti-smoking movie, too, by the way. Yeah, like, you know, Do you notice, like, all the smoke it's is, so like, gross. green? And, and like, it, they make it, like, extra putrid throughout yes. the film. Yes, they do. I was looking at, I was reading about Carell DeVille's history, and apparently in, in Italian, she's known as Carell Demon, which is like demon. <laughs> and there was another one in French, it's Carella de Enfer, which I can't speak French, but which uh, is translated as Carella of Hell or from Hell. <laughs> well, and the Carella Demon or even um, d- the devil, you've got towards the end of the film when she's got those red eyes when she's in the car yeah, and she's like racing towards and then right before the big car crash, like there's that like really creepy shot where, you know, it's her face takes up the whole frame and she's got these big bright red eyes and it's like, oh my goodness, like <laughs> it's, uh, it's pretty intense. The world was such a wholesome place until... Cruella, Cruella de And Jasper and Horace are really fun. They remind me of the, the Home Alone guys, or I guess the Home Alone guys remind me of Jasper and Horace. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Marv, Marv and Harry, right? Yeah, no, I 100%. So, yeah, like I said, this this was a favorite as a kid, and watching it again just brought back some great nostalgic memories, and I, re- I really, really enjoyed it. So Well, and it's, it's a film that really, like, moves quickly yes. and I, I think you sort of said that david too where it's like once like the second half i mean it's just sort of non-stop once they get stolen and they sort of take off on their escape plan from there and it's a fun plan like i love the let's i love the hide in the soot and disguise ourselves as labradors even though those people are just idiots for not realizing <laughs> So as as a hundred Labradors walk by, you could probably suspect something's up. But yeah, generally, just like the whole action scene at the end is is a ton of fun. And like David, like you said, pretty pretty intense. And sure, you know they're not going to get caught and killed, but it's still you know that Obi Wan's not going to die in the prequels. But it's still still yes. some uh, yeah. <laughs> still some tension, still some drama. If we want to just bring up a few other random moments uh, in this movie, what are some other things you guys noticed? Um, I wanted to bring up the scene where I don't. What's the girl dog's name? P- uh, Purdy, 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 Pongo, and Purdy. Pongo's the guy. Pongo or Pongo. <laughs> well, and then they say the Pongos a lot of times after that. Yeah. They sort of brush over her name because yeah. it, it's it's hard to remember and pronounce. Perdita, apparently. Yeah. Perdita. Okay. Well, when she's giving birth to her litter, I love the kind of gags and like humor they put in the animation, just like him jumping on his owner's lap and him puffing his pipe and like they're super nervous. And there's just a lot of funny moments in there that I liked, especially with the 
the male human guy. I don't know his name either. Roger. Roger. Yes. But that whole scene was pretty funny. I was I was laughing a bit during the birth scene. And it was just like the way that they had Pongo like scratching on the door and just being ner- like showing him being nervous, I thought was cool because he's a dog and it's kind of hard to, to show that. But they did a good job with that scene. Well, and with the animation, how the backgrounds, like, especially in Roger's office or workspace, how it's so cluttered really reminded me of some of um, Norman Rockwell's paintings. Yeah. Where, like, you, you look at some of Norman Rockwell's paintings and it's like the doctor's office or some of these people's office. There's all this stuff all around and it's very busy, mm-hmm. but it doesn't feel busy. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it always captures your eye with all sorts of different stuff. One of the other things I thought was kind of interesting was the fact that aside from the opening credits, it immediately cuts to a voiceover and you see a dog in a window mm-hmm. and the dog's not talking. And you assume, oh, this is the human talking. Because, like, Pongo is saying, well, this is my pet, and he's this. And it's like, oh, wait, no, we're not hearing the human <laughs> talking. We're hearing the pet talking. And it's like, I thought that was really, like, really, really clever. Yeah. You know, and it, it sets the tone for the entire film where it's like, we're not interested in the humans. Yes, they're characters, but the main characters are the pets and so you open with the voiceover of pongo and yeah it really establishes the tone of the film at that time i lived with my pet in a bachelor flat just off regent's park it was a beautiful spring day tedious time of the year for bachelors oh that's my pet roger roger radcliffe a musician of sorts yeah, and for the most part, the humans are kind of stupid in this movie. I mean, Jasper and Horace are probably the ones you see the most, and they're just idiots, and Cruella DeVille is, is who she is. I love the Roger just, like, banging on the piano, singing the Cruella song as she's walking in the door. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He hates her so and much, he does not care. the trumpet upstairs. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. I do feel like I should look at the book or something. As is kind of routine in these Disney movies, you don't get a lot of backstory of any of the characters. And I love how Cruella DeVille just comes bursting in the door and they're like, oh, it's your old classmate. And that's like all we get of her history. Yeah. <laughs> like, who is this insane woman? Unless I missed a line or two. No, uh, that's all I heard, too. That's about all you get. Yeah, that's it. I guess maybe in the live action one, we get a little, a little more information, but I don't remember the Glenn Close one. I love how her character, the coat... It like basically becomes her body and like her, you know, her, the presence she takes up in the room. Because when you look at her actual character, she's like a stick, mm-hmm. but her coat's so big, it makes her like seem intimidating when she, he's like, uh, Roger's confronting her um, after the they give birth to the litter and everything. I just noticed like the how huge her coat was. You kind of think of her as like a big character, but she, when you look at her actual body, she's tiny. Yeah, and maybe it's also representative of like, she thinks she's bigger and better than she actually is because she gets duped by these dogs oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> so she's pretty pretty much uh she's pretty dumb we'll just say that hiding inside her massive coat mike did you notice the lady in the tramp dogs 
um, uh, cameos in this yeah, movie. Yeah, like the little Scotty dog or whatever you call him. So when they do the call out across London, um, they go past a dog store in the, in the window of the dog store two of the dogs from the pound and lady and the tramp are in the window. Okay. It's like the bulldog and then the scraggly, like old white hair dog. Yeah. From lady and the tramp. They're both in that window. Oh, and they call it the twilight bark. That's what they say. Isn't there any hope? Well, yes. There's the twilight bark. The twilight bark? But dear, that's only a gossip chain. Darling, it's the very fastest way to send news. And then at the end, uh, Roger and what's his wife's name? Uh, Anita <laughs> have 101 dogs in their house. That just sounds completely miserable to me. There'd be so much poop and pee everywhere, especially with the puppies. I was going to say, I feel like the police would be involved. There might be arrests. <laughs> um, it seems borderline illegal, but let's just like brush past that for the sake of Walt Disney. Yeah, well, and they, they sing about going to go start their own Dalmatian plantation. So I guess they'll be out of that house soon enough. But they don't because in the show... In the TV show, they're all living at home the whole time. (laughs) On next week's episode of Hoarders, uh, we've got a family with 101 dogs. (laughs) We'll have a Dalmatian plantation where our population can roam. In this new location, our whole aggregation will love our plantation home. And one other, one last thing I noticed. So at the beginning of the movie, he's like writing the Corella DeVille song, correct? Well, Mm -hmm. he was writing it earlier, but it's it's playing on the radio at the end. Yes, which is what like three days later. I get yeah. Okay. I get, not, yeah, she she drops a line like, "Oh, this is your biggest hit yeah, yet," yeah. and it's like, how like Britney Spears eat your heart out? This guy got <laughs> a hit single on the radio. Was able to find days. a studio, record it, and then uh, get it. I don't know what the, I guess they probably used LPs back then, you know, records, and get it on there. Yeah, I don't know, whatever. Roger, after all, that's your first big hit. It's made more money than we ever dreamed of. Let's let's start wrapping this up. So, Michael, on this show, we have our guests create sort of the rating system for the movie, but I feel like this one's pretty obvious. <laughs> Unless you want to go out on a limb, we could probably just rate this out of 101 Dalmatians, yeah? Out of 101 da- Dalmatians or 101 spots? Uh, whatever you want. Out of 101 spots, my goodness. Um... I will give this, I will give this ninety spots on a, out of a hundred one spots. Okay. And any any closing thoughts? No, I mean it's it it's definitely deserving um, of the classic mantle within the the Walt Disney film universe. It's a beautiful film. I don't think the animation is going to be for everybody. Uh, clearly, it wasn't that way for Walt. But um, <laughs> no, it's it. It's of its time, but at the same time, it does still speak to some of the same sort of attributes that are later carry on in other Walt Disney films. So, yes, the animation may not be as refined or as crisp as some of the later Disney films, but the characterizations, the themes, the tropes that you see later in the Disney films, it's all here. Yeah. So this is definitely a film that you have to see um, if you want to see where uh, Walt Disney really uh, picked up its uh, picked up its main ideas. Great. And what did you say? Did you say 90? I would say 90 out okay. of 101 All spots. Right. Yeah. Cool. David, how about you? I would give this movie 88 out of 101. 
I know that they're going to be better movies, so I have to reserve that 100%. No, it doesn't matter. A better movie. No, I'm trying to keep this consistent across all 60, (laughs) the percentages. It's going to be tough, but I'm trying. One thing I didn't mention was when 15, they had like 15 kids in the first litter. I was thinking, wait, how's this movie called 101 Dalmatians? Yeah. And like I barely remembered anything from about this movie from watching it as a kid and I thought that that was a good reveal like halfway halfway through the movie mm-hmm. or a little bit past halfway they revealed oh the other 85 or 84 however many dogs were also kidnapped by Cruella but they weren't a part of the same litter so that I thought that was a good surprise where you don't actually know why the movie is called the title until more than halfway through but I really enjoyed it I was concerned with the well-being of the main characters, and that's always a good a good thing. I liked Corella as a over-the-top villain, and liked the music and the animation. Cool, you said eighty-eight. Yep. Well, I'm gonna go one spot higher than Mr. Hafner and say say ninety-one. Like I said, it brought back a ton of memories from my childhood, and I was engaged throughout. Which I can't say that with some of these that we've gone through. So. 91 out of 101, which is pretty high up there on my list. So so with that, we will wrap this thing up. Thanks so much for listening. Remember to check us out on all social media, Disney 1X1, and of course, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen. Michael Hafner, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. No, thank you guys for having me. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, it was great talking about this film that I haven't rewatched in a very long time. And David, of course, thank you as always for joining me on this journey. I'm tired and I'm hungry and my tail's froze and my nose is froze and my ears are froze and my toes are froze. (laughs) I felt so bad for that little guy. Thanks, Mike, for having me back. (laughs) Next week, we have The Sword and the Stone, which I have never seen before. David, have you seen it? I have not. Okay, so we'll see what we think. All right, goodbye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Disney One by One podcast. If you have any questions or suggestions, send us an email to Disney1x1 at gmail.com. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Disney1x1 and at Disney1x1.com. We'll be back next week with another exciting episode of the Disney One by One podcast. <laughs>